Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9 of the Denver Crux Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Hazel, and today we've got on a very special guest. His name is Samir Chopra. I was lucky enough to meet Samir at the crag. He was sending it, and in the first 90 seconds of talking, we kind of got a chance to open up about our shared passion of philosophy. Samir is a professor of philosophy at the Brooklyn College. He's an author of several books, um, editorials, articles. He can be reached at samirchopra.com. That's S-A-M-I-R-C-H-O-P-R-A.com. Samir's an author, a husband, a father, and of course a climber. We dove into the world of philosophy explored anxiety and talked about what it means for each of us to live a fulfilled life. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this one and without further ado, I'm going to let it roll. Welcome to the Denver Crux, a podcast dedicated to the Colorado climbing community and their passion for adventure and pushing the limits of the human spirit. We got the pastries, mm-hmm. pumpkin pastries, because it is the month of October. Um, this is a this is actually a non-sponsored podcast, but I do want to sh- put a little shout out to Sprouts. That's where I got both the coffee and the pastry and the pastry, and it was good. So I'm impressed. Um, so today I'm super excited. Um, I have on Samir Chopra. Uh, Samir is by far one of the most interesting people that I have met and we actually met at the crag and you know we'll get into that a little bit later uh, right now Samir give us a just a quick intro on yourself who are you what do you do and we'll go from there uh, first uh, thanks Hazel thanks for having me on uh, so quick introduction would be that I am Samir Chopra as you said I am um, my family and I moved to Colorado two and a half years ago from Brooklyn, New York City. Um, I've been living in New York for about 27 years on and off with a couple of years in between um, in Australia. We moved to Colorado to be close to the mountains um, and uh, we're super happy to be here. Uh, I was keen to bring my daughter up uh, you know, close to the mountains. We all climb, or in fact, I think our love for climbing started in Colorado. I'm a philosophy professor in my day job, and I am also working as a philosophical counselor, and um, and perhaps life after academia will see me, not perhaps, I think life after academia will see me doing um, counseling full-time and climbing a bunch as well, and uh, and doing all of that here in Colorado with my family. So I'm, I'm psyched to be here in Colorado, psyched to have settled down, psyched to have my daughter go to school out here. Um, like to have gone out and scrambled the second flight iron this morning and <laughs> be here in the evening. That's exactly the life I wanted in Colorado. And yeah, so thanks for having me on. It it sounds like, and to no surprise, you being a major proponent of philosophy in your life, it sounds like you have truly achieved the perfect work-life balance. Uh, well, I, I don't know if it's perfect, but there's a, yeah, there's a nice work-life balance in the sense that... Uh, 
you know, we have time for the family, we have time to get out, we have time to test ourselves, we have time to be comfortable. Um, you know, I'm counseling, I'm teaching, I'm writing. Uh, I got a lot of time with my daughter and I got a lot, lot of time with my daughter outdoors. And we made good friends since moving to Colorado. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say perfect, but I think I have a really nice work-life balance in my life. And um, I think it's, I think it's something that's possible to achieve. And um, without meaning to sound too pompous or pretentious, it's it's difficult in our nation. Um, but um, but yeah, I think climbing has had a huge role, and both climbing and philosophy have had a huge role to play in in achieving this balance. With both of them informing each other in many ways as well. Maybe you've had the same experience I have in terms of when we interact with people, when we first meet people. Sometimes, you know, we'll start talking about who they are, what they do and everything and everything like that. But I, again, I find it very interesting that from what, from how you were just saying those things, you, you clearly prioritize your family, your personal life, things outside of work, but also work. But a lot of people will just focus on work and I think that's you know and it's kind of things that we're gonna transition into today but a lot of times people don't think about their personal achievements outside of work outside of their own you know accolades career success it's just all right I'm just gonna you know I'm just working I'm just doing this but you have you have obvious passions and we've talked about this offline you know when we first met and everything and you know you're climbing you know um, the best I got an extraordinary amount of information meeting your family. Um, and again, you you really have that balance down very well, we'll say, you know, uh, maybe no one has it perfectly, but I'm glad that it's a priority for you. Things outside of work and outside of the mundane administrative professional tasks of life. That's, that's a very unique characteristic. Yeah. You know, I, uh, first of all, thanks for saying all those nice things. Uh, I think about me, uh, thank you. <laughs> but I think work is so interesting because it's integral to our lives. And yet for so many of us, it's such a deeply unpleasant aspect of our lives and the way in which we want to skip around it or over it or under it. And we talk about there's life and then there's work or I'm kind of just working so that I can live my life and the rest of my time. There seems to me something deeply, deeply problematic about the fact that we're taking this one life that we've got and we've got this part of it just blocked off. That's this black hole that we call work. And it, you know, I don't think it has to be that way. And I think there's, there's a very interesting inquiry to be done as, you know, as a philosopher as to why work is a four letter word, why so many of us find it unpleasant, why is it so unrewarding? You know, many of the people I talk to who are unhappy in their lives are unhappy because of work. So I think there's there's I think there's a there's a huge political social ethical issue there to be explored and I think there's a lot of people thinking about it right but I also think there's something to be said for keeping that balance in such a way that work becomes one of the things that's important in our lives and work is one of the things that gives us meaning but it's not the only thing right also and I think for pointing out family and life I think it's you know I think I'm just rediscovering the oldest truth of all that you know that love is central and in some ways the best way to spend time on this planet the most meaningful way to spend time on this planet is to do things you enjoy with people you love right absolutely right so i think no one can get that quite right but i think 
climbing, running, reading books, eating meals with my family, going out with my family, having intelligent conversations like this one. I think these are all part of that balance. Absolutely. Know? So again, I'm just absolutely stoked to be having this conversation. So for, for those who don't know or aren't familiar with the podcast world, I reach out in multiple ways from a networking standpoint, whether it's people who I already know within the climbing community, whether it's people who I recently met, um, and sometimes whether it's reaching out online to people who I haven't yet met who maybe you know have something interesting to share and everything. And this was one of the topics that I've been just very adamant about speaking about and finding someone to have a conversation with is the world of philosophy and all the amazing ways that it relates to the world of climbing and who we are and everything. Um, and like I was telling you offline, I was so excited to meet you because in the first five minutes, we just started talking. And philosophy isn't exactly a topic that comes up in natural conversation amongst strangers, <laughs> but it did for us. I forgot the exact context, um, but it just came up. And um, I think I think uh, one of us was making a quote about um, Marcus Aurelius or something, and uh, we had shared right. that. Oh, hey, you know, you're into existentialism. I'm I'm into stoicism, and vice versa. And so. Again, this is a very unique opportunity for me to be able to have this conversation. So again, thank you for coming on, man. That's great. Um, so before we dive in all of that, I want to get back to the beginning. Uh, Samir, where did you where did you grow up? Uh, well, I was born in <laughs> going all the way back to the mists of time. Um, <laughs> I was born in a long, long time ago. I was born in India, and I moved to the states when I was twenty years old, and I followed a very sort of traditional or typical path for lots of Indian immigrants to the US which is that I came here for grad school and I came here for grad school because you know I wanted to study um, a discipline that was hard to I mean uh, let me just put it this way getting into any kind of professional or graduate school in India was extremely difficult just because of the numbers involved and so I had you know certain kinds of reasons for wanting to leave, but most of them were just, you know, the classic American one. You think you can find better opportunities and the like elsewhere. And, you know, America was kind of magical and romantic in all those ways. I'd, I had very deeply steeped myself in American history and culture and literature while I was living in India. So America had this very mythical sort of larger than life quality for me. And I came here to the States. I went to grad school. I worked. I did more grad school. Um, and, you know, my path changed a little bit. Once I came to the States, I studied computer science when I came out here. But I had always had been the student who had this inkling for the humanities. And that's what I'd wanted to study in India. But, you know, India's a, India's a very rapidly developing country. And its priorities were for engineers, scientists, mathematicians, doctors, you know, not folks who wanted to study literature and history and philosophy, right? So I did mathematics in India. I did a bachelor's degree in mathematics. I did a master's degree in computer science. But I was always just sort of like a little bit like kind of out of whack. I was, you know, I was like there were things on my mind other than just the technical details of the work that I was doing. And then when I started to do my first, my first gig, my first job at Bell Labs in New Jersey, I was like, 
I was kind of dissatisfied. I was playing basketball at lunchtime. I was, you know, leaving early. I was, I was just dabbling a bit. My girlfriend at the time had started to um, get me interested in life outside of the kind of path that I'd chosen because she was doing something similar. She was like leaving her job, going back to school. She was like studying literary theory. So I would like read her books, you know, like I would work through her reading lists and I was like, man, I should be back in school and I should just do, I should, I should quit this gig. I should go back to grad school. And so that's what I did. I left my job at Bell Labs and I, I said, I'm, I'm going to move to New York City and I'm going to do a PhD in philosophy. And um, I did that and I was 26 when I started my PhD. So I was a little bit of a late starter, mm-hmm. but I did my PhD. I finished it up took me six, seven years. And, you know, my path during my PhD changed as well. Interests, advisors, you know, there's academic circumstances. And I landed up doing my dissertation in, in an area that was pretty interdisciplinary, which is studying how rational agents change their beliefs in response to new information. And, you know, this has obviously implications in the philosophy of science, thinking about how theories change. When you believe one theory and you start believing another one, what's that process like? Uh, it's a great interest to AI people because they're designing robots that need to be able to go out into noisy environments and change their knowledge bases and beliefs in response to new inputs coming into them, right? I thought it was going to be a cold day. Instead, it's hot. Like, whoa, I need to do something different today, right? Mm-hmm. This, we do this all the time. How do you model this? So right? adaptation. Adaptation, yeah. So okay. belief revision in response to adaptation. How do you model this logically? And how do you model this keeping in mind certain kinds of rationality constraints, right? So I don't just change my beliefs like in some random fashion. There's a kind of an order that I follow. If there's some things I really want to believe, like my religious beliefs, I'm going to keep them safe out here. And I'm not going to change them no matter what new information I'm getting. I'm just going to hang on to them tight. That might be the case with some of my beliefs. Some of my beliefs are like brand new ones. I-25 is open. Oh, it's not open. All right, forget it. I'll just go somewhere else, right? So some things are like evanescent beliefs, mm-hmm. some things are very protected, and then there's a whole range of them. Interesting. Right? So how do you model change in that? Right? And like logic alone will not give you the answer. Right? Let me ask you, when you when you made that switch or when you made that decision mm-hmm. to go on to grad school, you're twenty six years old, you're you say, Hey, I'm gonna go get my PhD in philosophy. What in your mind, what job were you basing that decision off of? Like, I'm gonna go and get a PhD in philosophy. What did you see yourself doing as a career with philosophy? Because I think that's one of the more misunderstood um, areas of study is, what do you do with the degree? Yeah. So what was your intention with that? Uh, I'll be totally honest with you. I was, I was very unhappy at the time and reading philosophy was giving me relief. Uh, I was, I was burnt out. I was bored. I was disenchanted. I was disillusioned. You know, what whatever adjectives you want to use to describe me at my job. I was like, man, maybe I'm, maybe I'm living life all wrong. Like, maybe I'm, like, is this what my life is gonna be? Like, pounding 35 miles on the highway up and down, looking for the best parking spots every day. Like, wh- what's up with all of this? And I was reading philosophy, and it was making me feel better. Right when I would read stuff like this in the evenings, and I could see that my girlfriend, who was reading these books, these books were making me feel like wow, I'm like seeing 
aspects and facets to this world that I never noticed before. And I suddenly felt like, man, I could be doing this job for the rest of my life, this very narrowly defined job where in fact my managers just want me to become more and more narrowly mm -hmm. specialized and I will miss out on this world. And reading these books is blowing my mind. It's opening up my mind, my eyes. And you know what? If there's some way I need to spend time on this planet, <laughs> I at that moment, all I wanted to do is spend all my time doing that. So I thought, well, you know what? Obviously, there's practical matters. There's money. There's school. What are you going to do? So I started taking uh, non-matriculate classes in philosophy. I would like go into the city. I registered for a couple of classes. I paid the tuition. I would go at night. I would. I, I took a class on Aristotle on nature, and I took a class on social and political philosophy. And you know, I got good grades in both the classes. And both my professors said, "Hey, you know, if you want to do graduate school, I'll, I'll write you a letter of recommendation." But I was just like doing this step by step. I wasn't really thinking about what I was going to do afterwards. I was just like, man, I want to, these books are what I want to do. So you were truly there for the love of it. Not love in necessarily the sense, a professional ambition. Yeah, no. You just knew that you loved what you were studying. Yeah. That's I mean, awesome. and because it was making me feel like a better kind of life was possible. Like it was elevating my mind. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about better stuff. As opposed to just like hanging out at TGI Fridays and freaking getting wings and beers with my buddies after work. I'm like, this is bullshit, man. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean not, not to knock socializing with friends at all. But I was like, that can't be all of it. There's got to be something more, you know? And so I think, and, I, and then, you know, like my, my mom passed away in, at the same time. She passed away a month after my 26th birthday. And I was... Obviously, I was like grieving the loss of my mother and I was very, very, very unhappy. And I think philosophy had a role to play in that as well, that I thought maybe it would give me relief from this feeling I had. And, you know, like bereavement is quite, it's, it's quite shattering because all of a sudden, you know, like especially when both parents are gone, you're suddenly like unmoored. Like there's some sort of concrete that has gone from the world. And all of a sudden you're like, and it's almost like that, I think I mentioned that in my essay on anxiety, there was a kind of a terror that came over me because I was like, if my parents aren't here, I could do anything. And that anything includes anything. Because in some sense, you know, like, <laughs> you can invoke Nietzsche at this point, there's a, there, there was something that defined a kind of ordering of the universe of good and bad and things that, you know, like I had to, like my life was, had some kind of rating in some ways that I derived from these folks. And that was still in me, but they were gone. And so some very deep kind of connection with the world was gone, right? And it was really quite, I think, a sundering in some ways. I was like lost. I was like, what the fuck is all this? Like, it, it really felt pointless and meaningless. And I think at that time, philosophy offered me some way of trying to make sense of all of this. And so I think at that time, it really was very narrowly directed. I'm going to move to the city. I'm going to get out of my day job. I lost everything. You know, I was like, all my stuff was gone. I had to move back home to take care of my mom for a month or so. I started brand new. I was like renting, you know, a room with other grad students on the Upper West Side. And, you know, it was, I was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. It was, I think, five years into my PhD that I remember some professors from Rutgers had come to campus. And they were like, hey, man, you should be writing journal articles. You should be going to conferences. I'm like, what? 
oh, there's a profession of philosophy, even though I was part of it, you know, the professors, seminars, talks, journals, all of that. But I was just like, and then once I was in the PhD, there were other personal issues, like I'm gonna do this thing, right? I'm in the middle of the river. <laughs> I can't go back to that bank, you know? I'm not gonna get swept down, so I've gotta get to the other bank, right? It was like as straightforward as that. I wanna finish this damn PhD. So there were like a couple of different forces, but it wasn't really professionally driven. Then literally in my last year, my advisor was like, you need to get published. You need to get a gig. You need to start thinking about life. I was like, oh yeah, sure. And then when that switch went on in, in me, I think other parts of me kicked in, the immigrant, the hustler, you know, I was like, man, I gotta keep my head above water, <laughs> right? So I was yeah. like, it just comes naturally to me. I was like, all right, I'm gonna start hustling, right? And then I was a hustler. I was like sending out applications and I was going to conferences and I was scrimping and saving on money. And like, I went to three international conferences my last year of school, Stockholm, Greece, because I was just like, man, I gotta go and present my papers and you know, like I was pressing the hand, you know, I was just say pressing the flesh, mm -hmm. you know, like shaking hands with all the professors. And so I, I moved very quickly into professional mode because I think that old fear of the immigrant of being destitute in a land where you don't have much family, like, like practically no family, just, you know, a couple of scattered folks here and there. Um, uh, no offense to anybody intended, but I really didn't feel like I was, you know, that I could take care of myself without getting a gig. So I, I found myself a postdoc. I went to Australia, to Sydney. And you know, like my, I had this interdisciplinary sort of focus in my life because I finished with a PhD in philosophy, but I got a postdoc with an AI research group that was part of a computer science department. And so I went up to Sydney and taught with them, I mean, worked with them for a couple of years. And when I came back to Brooklyn College, I got hired in the computer science department because there were no jobs in philosophy. But I'd done so much work that kind of spanned disciplines. I was able to apply to computer science departments and I got a job with the computer science department instead. But, and then Brooklyn College kind of sweetened the deal by letting me teach in both departments. So for eight years, I taught in both computer science and philosophy departments. And then in 2010, I switched to the philosophy department. And then for the last dozen years, I've been teaching there. Very nice. Sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded no, answer. No, no, that's, <laughs> dude, that's the, that's the background. That's, that's you. <laughs> Thanks. Now we had, so real quick, I'm going to, I'm going to rewind a little bit. We're going to Quentin Tarantino a little bit just to get into yeah, yeah. how I met. Non-linear text. Uh, Samir. <laughs> so Samir and I actually met on, on a little climbing expedition uh, via meetup, you know, um, uh, us and our mutual friend, um, shout out to Bob Dagler. All right, over in the, the climbing Denver social <laughs> scene. Um, we had set up a nice little climbing expedition and went out there and, um, like I said, met up with, with Samir, his family, just amazing, amazing uh, group of, uh, an amazing family. Thanks. And he had mentioned that he studies philosophy um, and we had established that you are a major proponent within the realm of philosophy for existentialism. Would you say that's your main passion within the realm of philosophy? Uh, it's a very, well, I wouldn't say it's main, but I would say it's it's definitely a very important influence in my, in my philosophical thinking and especially in my counseling. Mm -hmm. um, when I first um, came to the formal study of philosophy, I'd kind of had, a, you know, what academic philosophers would call kind of an informal literary introduction to existentialism, you know, through novels and plays and things like that, you know, Sartre, Camus and... 
um, those kinds of writers. Um, and, um, you know, Sartre, Camus, Unamuno, you know, a lot of these sort of more literary flavored existentialists. And they wrote in a style that to me, like I hadn't encountered the technical existentialists like Kierkegaard, Heidegger, or Nietzsche, but I had read the, read the literary ones. And they seem to have the kind of a flavor of literature and philosophy that especially appealed to me and then kind of dragged me in, I think, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And I think now when I do counseling work, I think there's a lot of work. I think it's not unique to me. There's a whole field called existential psychotherapy, for instance, and a lot of the early existentialists themselves kind of dabbled in psychology. Carl Jaspers is a classic example. He was a mm -hmm. psychiatrist himself. Um, so because it's placed the individual at the center of its concerns, and its concern is not so much with, not necessarily only with philosophical doctrines, but also it tries to get at the question of who is producing the philosophical doctrine, right? So in some sense, it makes a very strong linkage between the doctrines that we come up with and the persons that we are, right? So, you know, Nietzsche has this beautiful line where he says, um, uh, all philosophy is but disguised autobiography, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a truth in there that the way we philosophize, the kinds of, even the kinds of truths that we hold to be universal and that we recognize, they actually say a great deal about ourselves, right? They're kind of, you're kind of saying a lot about yourself when you, you know, when you profess your beliefs or even, and I think even things like, you know, even, even in abstract disciplines, there's certain kinds of ways in which I think even our personality gets reflected in these, in these kinds of intellectual uh, attractions that we have. So anyway, to come back to your question, I would say existentialism is a very important concern for me, something I've taught, something I've, you know, I've, I've never written anything formally on existentialism. Like, you know, you won't find any papers in existentialism mm -hmm. journals or something like that. It's just something that informs me, informs my life and my teaching just because I've, you know, I've read so many of the existentialist philosophers. Now that I'm writing a book on anxiety, the biggest section in the book is on anxiety. And I think the existentialists were interesting and important because they named anxiety explicitly, especially in like Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, you know, they were referring to a field that's been present in, I think, philosophy right from the get-go. But they named it explicitly. And I think in doing that, they kind of bridged psychology and philosophy. And they introduced a certain kind of sophistication to psychological thinking and speculation, which, you know, is many ways, I think, is the hallmark of 19th and 20th century philosophy. It's very sophisticated philosophically, very perceptive. You know, depth psychology makes an entrance through people like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. Um, yeah, so, and I think because existentialism is quite as psychologically sophisticated and acute as it can be, that I think now, particularly in my work, and in my thinking about the topics that really are of interest to me now, it's you know it's kind of definitely front and center in that sense. Yeah. Now I know that you obviously and myself as well, um, we had we had studied philosophy back in college. I had um, I had also continued philosophy on a non-professional basis uh, for a very long time now, and even now I'd say I'm at a a height of my philosophical interest in my life, even more so than when I was studying it uh, formally in college. But outside of us, for those those listening, could you give just a very layman breakdown of what is existentialism? Sure, sure. Um, so one, okay, one real quick way to introduce existentialism is through a slogan uh, that's normally attributed to Jean-Paul Sartre. 
which is that existence precedes essence. All right, that's a mouthful. What does that mean? It means that as far as we human beings are concerned, there isn't some vital or some necessary essence to us that is waiting to be realized in our lives. And, or to put it in more broad terms, there isn't some, there isn't some normative ordering already imposed in our lives which generates either a life plan for us, which generates some kind of meaning to the life we're going to live, or some kind of valuation of the life we're going to live. Instead, all of that comes from the highly individual and particularized life that we live with the choices that we make, right? So in some sense, it's not as if I'm born into this world with a kind of script that's been written out for me, or that's a script that's written out for all humans, and all my life is supposed to do is to instantiate that script and either succeed or fail in doing so. There's nothing like that going on. Instead, what existentialism is committed to is the claim that in some sense, this world such as it is, and I think this is a kind of a Nietzschean form of the existentialism, this world such as it is, is the product of people, of human beings, right? And this world without those choices and actions of human beings is devoid of any inherent intrinsic purpose or valuation or norms imposed upon it, right? It is in some sense devoid of any of that till human existence enters the scene as far as we are concerned. I mean, clearly this world has an existence and independence of us, but like the world that we inhabit the human world, and I don't just mean like literally human bodies, but like our language, our culture, our history, our space, everything. This world that we have, this is ours, made by our choices. And in some sense, you know, that agonizing sort of feeling that I have that, is there something I'm supposed to be doing now that I've been born? The existentialist answer is no. You need to make up your mind what you're gonna do now that you're born and here. And actually, if you wanna make it even more fine in the Heideggerian sense, you're here in this situation, in this throneness, with this history behind you. Given all of this of the world, now what, right? I absolutely, and that is, that was actually the quote that my philosophy professor had first said back in intro to philosophy back uh -huh. in the day. Um, is existence precedes essence. Um, I'm gonna pull, I'm gonna do a little excerpt from Samir's article that he wrote. Um, it's called The Usefulness of Dread. And by you explaining that, that was a great explanation by the way. Thank you. Um, I'm just gonna pull this excerpt. To believe that there was a final end to my life, a purpose, a destination, and intended theology was to be infected with an anxiety that I was not fulfilling my purpose in life, that I was wasting my life. And that's what makes ex existentialism so interesting is it's all on us, right? It's all on us. And I think the wins that we have in life 
you know, like, you know, let's take climbing, for example. And I'm not sure if this is what goes through your head when climbing, but I think about these connections all the time when I'm literally up there on the rock is if I, if I send it, you know, I got another, um, two clips, three clips until the bolts or whatever. If I make it, that's on me. I did that. It's not, it's not some divine intervention that it's my destiny to send it. No, it's, I will either send it or I won't, but that's based on me. There's no magic behind it. Did I have the ability? Did I train myself well enough? Was I focused in that particular moment? Was I feeling good that day? Did I get good sleep? Am I ready for this particular climb? If I did it, I did it. And I get that win. On the flip side, if I don't, and you know, I just can't send it or I fall or whatever, that's what happened based on my decisions and granted, you know, sometimes there's some additional factors, right? If it starts raining, right? Like, hey, that's an environmental factor. Like, that stopped me from sending it. But it's not like, from an existential standpoint, the existentialist doesn't believe that the God said, no, you were not meant to send it this day. It just wasn't your day. Yeah, or I would actually uh, refine that just a bit to think of, so... Think of climbing as climbing as this domain. It's think of climbing as the world. That's all there is, right? You're born into this world, right? And instead of humans, we just have climbers. That's all we do. Well, is there some particular climbing destination that I have to fulfill in order for my life to be successful? Do I have to send a particular grade? Do I have to climb in a particular ethic? Do I have to climb a certain style? Do I have to lead trad? Do I have to do? A, do I have to try hard in a particular way? There are all these. There, there, there's like five thousand norms out there mm-hmm. in the world of climbing, and they all add up in some ways to a kind of normative expectation that's placed on you, or that you imagine is operative on you every time you step out on the crag. And one of the things that you can do to yourself is that you can go to the crag, or you can go out in the mountains, and you can come back. And you can have a sense of utter and total failure, right? Or you can have a sense of grandiose overachievement, which is marked by its spectacular crash the next day when you realize that, in fact, you might have done the hardest f- first ascent of all time. But when you get back to your car, you're just that same old human being that left, mm-hmm. right, in some ways. And how many times have you sent a very difficult project, a very difficult climb, and you know everyone congratulated you? And you get back, just like you said, and it's like, you know, that climb really wasn't too much fun. It wasn't that good of a day. Uh, I'm glad I sent it, but I've done way easier climbs and had a lot more fun. Yeah, or uh, uh, that, and even even if you have a climb that went great, it's amazing, right? How long does that feeling last, right? There's going to be something else that's going to come up the next day, mm-hmm. To make you feel insecure about yourself as a climber or in some ways dissatisfied with what you've achieved or what you haven't yet achieved or some dissatisfaction about the fact that the next thing that you the next new goal that you have invented for yourself under this normative ordering now that remains unachieved right um you know it can turn into a kind of a self-mutilation right mm-hmm. i i didn't do this i'm not hard i didn't i don't climb hard enough i haven't you know, last year I was leading 5.8 and now I'm only leading 5.9 plus and that's like really slow progress. And, and you know, it's 
interesting coming out here like literally in the last two days I've just had this book on my the corner of my on my little shelf on, on the side and this is book that my that my daughter was reading it's called women who dare and it's a kind of a collection of essays about strong women climbers lots of great photographs and I think somewhere in the early part of the book there's a quote from Martha Graham who was you know the great doyen of American dance and a choreographer and there's a really beautiful line and I'm and I'm gonna get that paragraph and I wish I'd taken a photograph of it and brought it with me because I want to give it to you and it says you your energy your movements your motion is this unique expression of the universe coming out through you that's beautiful it's only you nobody else has it not Tommy Caldwell not anybody else it's you it's unique and your job is not to question this energy your job is not to restrict it place it humiliate it oppress it tell it it's horrible just express it man and if you don't express it this world is losing out on that expression this whole thing about you like I mean, I mean I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating from this but think about it this whole palette that we see of the world around us is so many different things and it's that beautiful just because of all these different things that are in it right so maybe I'm just like part of that kind of tapestry of the world of climbing like you know I go to the well dude today I went to the crag and there was this like there was this brown dude and I could like hear his accent a mile away and like he was <laughs> fucking cursing getting on this like 5'9 like maybe like that's what I brought to the crag like maybe like maybe like I met you oh how much I was cursing on that climb <laughs> well, there you go <laughs> yeah. right um, I get a little bit loud but you know what I mean like there's something unique and distinctive about this life we're living and we're the only ones that we can that can live it and I think yeah. Climbing is one part of that expression. So I think when you go out there, quite literally, you know, climbers say this when they're in a good mood with each other. They say, dude, you do you. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, exactly. Because that's the only thing you can do because everything else is taken up, right? I don't know. That's a line from some pop star. Like, <laughs> you can only do you because everyone else is taken up, right? Everyone is already taken. Absolutely. I think... Um I think people such as you and I who um, are involved with philosophy on a day-to-day basis, uh, someone who's allowed philosophy to enter their lives and everything, I think we have um, quite a connection with other climbers, even those who don't study philosophy. Because if you think about it, I would say many climbers, and of course there's there's a dichotomy there, but many climbers have that kind of, let's say, cliche... Um, how do you say um, that attitude that mental philosophy of hey my life is about just going out waking up waking up in the morning in my van and climbing and you see a lot of our demographic who they're not overly focused on work or you know just trying to hit every single number trying to make as much money as as possible even at the sacrifice of personal lives a lot of our community and we can list this for many other communities the surfing community and many others but a lot of us tend to have a love for just being out there just being Mm -hmm. you know um just connecting with mother nature challenging ourselves and i don't know too many climbers at all i haven't came across many climbers who just have a bad attitude for the rest of the day if they don't send something mm-hmm. it's kind of always a good adventure yeah. you know when you're on the adventure whether or not like I get stoked 
listen, I, I do a bunch of a bunch of five five um, uh, slab climbs in the flat irons. Yeah, yeah. And easy climbs, but I have a blast doing it. Yeah, that's yeah. how. That's like my true love. If I could pick the perfect day of climbing, it would be some clear skies and doing doing some five six slab or something. Totally. And totally. just being up there and enjoying it. Yeah. So yeah. I think this morning was pretty special for that reason. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. You know, and and so that's why I was kind of mentioning at the start of our conversation about it's very refreshing to be speaking to someone and to, you know, have yet another friend who doesn't get overly engrossed in just success, <laughs> uh, life, career, right? Just right. How, how much money's in the bank, right? More so, hey, do I have that balance? Because, like you said, right. yes, is career success can that be fulfilling too? Absolutely, but there comes a time if it goes too far to the right to where it's just, what else are you? Are you defining yourself by your profession? I tell my friends at work all the time. Um, I tell them, uh, you know, because my my industry tends to talk about work a lot, like many other industries, and you know, talking about work, talking about work, and you know, when it comes time for the weekend, um, and they're still talking about work, I'm like, what are you guys doing for the weekend? Because <laughs> for me, I don't define myself by my career. You know, I'm a climber, a snowboarder, a hiker. That's how I define myself. And then career is like, you know, fourth place in line, fifth place in line, something like that. But it's not my main thing. Right, right. You know, uh, there's something you said early on about the the kinds of, I think, attitudes and, I don't know, there's a horrible word. Um, I think the attitudes, motivations, beliefs, and values that like climbers bring to climbing. And, you know, I find this, whether it's outer crag or at a trailhead or sometimes even on just out on a modern face, um, you know, climbers have a certain amount of danger and risk in their lives. I think that makes a difference to certain kinds of decisions they make, certain kinds of valuations they place on the kinds of things they do. And I've been very fortunate, you know, I met very thoughtful climbers. I've had great conversations with climbers. Um, you know, obviously there's, 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 um, there's a, there are varying levels of investment and thought that people put into their climbing and that reflects the kind of relationship they have to climbing. You know, for some folks, it's completely recreational. For some folks, there are larger projects going on in there. For some folks, it's a profession, but it's a profession they've chosen because of particular kinds of connections with the world of being mm -hmm. outside. And yeah, and I think that, 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 um, that notion that one very important part of rock climbing, when you say rock climbing, that we like being outside, like being in certain spaces, we like a certain kind of movement that's outdoors, in space, in fresh air, on rock, with certain kinds of tactile feelings in your body. There's certain kinds of body movements that are highly pleasurable. You know, I mean, just like, you know, like, like lie backing is fun. I mean, you know, what can you say? Well, I saw you lie backing and you happen, that happens to be a strength of yours. <laughs> um, again, I was cursing the entire crag could hear me when I was on that climb and you just like, da 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 da. Went right up and I'm like, oh, great smear. Way to, way to make me look bad. <laughs> but I did clip the second bolt, whereas you you were, I think, going up clean. Um, but you know what I mean? I think that it's, and I think because, and I think especially a really important thing about climbing is because people encounter fear, they overcome challenges, and they get to destinations. Climbing language and climbing metaphors are 
very pregnant and loaded with meaning and significance for you know they map on all these metaphors like you need to make the first move you gotta commit to the move right or when you clip the anchors or you know when you get to the top you're only halfway down these are like incredible metaphors for life mm-hmm. you know as well mm-hmm. so i think in some ways if you're thinking through that and i think lots of climbers do they go through interesting processes of self-discovery while they're out climbing and i think there's varying levels at which people are conscious of these processes when they're thinking about them and some climbers are quite overt about it and some climbers are just they just notice the change in themselves or or you know they just want to do more climbing because it brings them into contact with the part of themselves that they like being in contact with right i thought it was pretty interesting you mentioned what you were studying in college is that human adaptation how that intrigued you is do you think that's a huge motivation for your love for climbing because when you're up there every single move you're making it you know to the next pitch or you know just to the next move you constantly have to adapt constantly. yeah and i think even um uh i think even more fundamentally for me perhaps um as i think i think two projects one is that of definitely being outside and feeling like being outside and being being in certain kinds of spaces especially mountains rocks that that was that brought me into contact with certain aspects of my you know my childhood memories and my childhood connections with mountains i have to tell you about my two years in a boarding school in india up in the mountains i'll tell you about that later uh, but then the other thing is also that it brings you into contact with a fear that's very old and ingrained for me because like most human beings I'm scared of falling scared of heights mm-hmm. and but it was very very you know powerful and almost shame inducing at times I think sometimes that I, and I think when I and I felt in some ways I was denying myself a kind of experience because of the fear so climbing is very much related to me to this project that there's this huge fear that blocks me from doing this thing I want to do so i want to work through that fear or find a way to like coexist with the fear because i never say i mastered it conquered mm-hmm. it or anything like that the fear is there it's right. just that and you welcome it yeah i mean it's like you know it it has to happen because i'm going directly in that direction but you will coexist with it and you will not miss out on other kinds of experiences because of that and you talk about that in your article is that the goal you know when it comes down to we're in such a culture where we are trying to get away from anxiety and outside of it being crippling as you had mentioned there's nothing wrong with anxiety it's something that we should live with and a lot of times we're trying to eliminate it completely through medications and you know this and this but why are we trying to get rid of something that is actually a beautiful part of our lives as long as it's not destroying us from within. Right, right. You know, and r- r- right there we're sort of, you know, there's like, there's anxiety and fear are obviously very closely related, not exactly the same thing in in the sense that anxiety is like a fear of nothing that's really visible, but it can become a concrete fear like a fear of heights or a fear of falling. But I think that the other point that you introduced about anxiety in some sense being inevitable and I think it's 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 a kind of given. You know, you have you have finite time, you're conscious of finite time, you know you're going to die. It places a certain kind of constraint over your life and that constraint is present at varying levels in our consciousness. 
and we are aware of some quite you know unavoidable facts about life mortality illness creeping years certain kinds of things are inevitable and certain and those that knowledge and that awareness creates a kind of baseline anxiety that will not go away it cannot go away by definition and it is the one thing that links all humans i mean jeff bezos mm. 75 million or billion pardon me dollars will not save him from the kind of anxiety that is the fear of his own death mm-hmm. the fear of the loss of his loved ones and the fear that as he gets older he's going to get a steady stream of messages telling him that his friends and family are passing away nothing can protect him from this mm-hmm. right and this is something all of us know at some level in our minds we know this so that anxiety cannot go away what you can do i think is if you have a philosophical acceptance of it or a kind of you know kind of worked out acceptance of it is that you know as the punchline of the book i suppose is you don't have to be anxious about being anxious right you are going to be anxious mm-hmm. right and because it is inevitable and i think this is a very cornerstone of buddhist philosophy as well you know the buddha knew you wouldn't get rid of anxiety or fear while you lived unless you were an exceptional you know bodhisattva type person mm-hmm. but because you were going to live with it there was no getting away from it you had to approach it in some ways so you know you read many modern buddhist monks is very central to their teachings approach the fear face the fear live with the fear confront it work through it as many metaphors as you want mm. you know the fast river current you got you got a kick right i mean the, there's no way else for you to stay afloat right it's interesting how many different even though there are so many different philosophies slash religions you know kind of intermingle a little bit um i know you were saying that existentialism is one of your favorites and it's also one of my favorites um definitely at the top of list of intrigue at this point in my life is stoicism as i was telling you about and stoicism kind of steals i think all the philosophies kind of steal from each other a little bit and they sure. kind of because it all kind of comes down to the same thing at the end of the day with a few nuances but the concept of memento mori is something that will be endlessly fascinating to me and i've had a lot of different just from going through life and whether it's family members friends people who i talk to about these things it's such an interesting split between the people who it creates anxiety as you were just mentioning you know like hey death is coming it's going to happen nothing is going to save you from that your friends will die your family will die it will happen you will die there's that split between the people who have anxiety from that and then the people who flourish from that knowledge that life is finite and that's what me- what memento mori is is basically saying remember you will die it's not up for debate it's not an opinion mm-hmm. um and i'm not sure about you do you do you think about that concept through your day-to-day activities in terms of how you're going to approach the day what you're going to do on the weekend how you interact with your family is that a big concept in your life uh you know before i say anything could you just tell me what you understand by memento mori for those who haven't heard the phrase yeah so memento mori general translation is remember you will die mm-hmm. and basically saying let that let that fact guide you in a way with what you're going to do with your days yeah it could be you could have you know one of the one of um 
one of the the sayings that I really enjoyed is uh, that someone had said is a lot of people when someone gets cancer, for example, like a friend or a family member, they say, "Oh man, you know, I don't know what I would do if I got diagnosed with with mm-hmm. cancer." Mm-hmm. You do have a terminal illness, mm-hmm. whether it's cancer or something else. Yeah, yeah. The difference between you and this person who just gave you that news is they have a specific timeline left. Right. Hey, the doctor gave me right. a year, six yeah. months. Yeah. You have the same thing. You mm-hmm. just don't know what your timeline is. Yeah, perfect. But it's going to happen. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, I once, I used to teach classes in uh, post-apocalyptic literature and in one of them, there's a novel called On the Beach by an Australian novelist called Neville Shute. And in that, nuclear war has taken place in the Northern Hemisphere and this radioactive cloud is drifting down to the southern hemisphere and everybody's going to die. So the novel is about these people as they wait for the cloud. And, you know, so the whole analysis is what do people do? And and I made this point quite early on in the class. I said, remember, their situation while they're waiting for their deaths is only different from ours in the sense that they know it's a radioactive cloud and they know it's going to come in a few months, right? Mm-hmm. So we're doing this whole book to study about it, but in some ways... There is this, there is this time. You're sense. living it. Yeah. And also notice, you know, uh, Joan Didion wrote this, you know, Joan Didion, the, 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 uh, our very distinguished writer, you know, she wrote in, in a couple of books after two successive years in which she lost her husband and her daughter to illnesses. And she wrote this, you know, really powerful line. I've never forgotten it. She says, she says, every description of disaster begins with a description of what an ordinary day it was. Mm. Right? Mm. Every time. I don't care what disaster it is. It always starts with this. Yeah, I was pulling out of my driveway and I was going to get a coffee of, cup of coffee at the donuts. Or it was that day I was going to take a flight to Chicago for that business meeting of mine. Or it was that day I just dropped off the kids at school. People always tell you this like super mundane shit mm-hmm. before they go into a description of disaster. Because they want to tell you, man, I didn't see this coming, right? Mm-hmm. And in some sense, yeah, we won't, right? Because whenever you know, whenever the test results come back, or whenever that asshole in front just decides to just make that one fatal cut in front of you, never quite know in some sense, right? Yeah. And like, if you think about constraints, right? Suppose somebody tells you. You got 500 words to write this piece. That's when the creative juices start flowing for the writer, right? Exactly. I got to cut all the fat out, man. And I got to make sure it's 500 words. Well, death is like that constraint on your life. Right? And I'm going to pull this excerpt while you're on that, that thought because you said it perfectly. Um, again, this is from Smear's article. This world is ruled by merciless probabilities. There are no warnings attached to daybreak that this might be the day of catastrophic misfortune of fatal eventuality i found that very powerful nice. you know and you're you're what you're saying is 100 percent right like they're you know you don't know and every day does start off as an ordinary day yeah you know but yeah. again you know and that this is how i tell myself when i wake up in the morning i tell myself i remind myself memento mori you know and you know, I've got I've got Memento Mori tattoos, and yeah. even look at my, my computer here, man. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think there's I, I need to remind myself at all times. There is something going back to your original question, which I will say is quite I think directly related to this, and I think it has come up in 
two or three interesting sources which I think are sort of part of our popular discourse these days. You know, this idea that it's a constraint on life, right? It's kind of a hard constraint on life. It's a temporal constraint. Maybe it's distant, maybe it's close, we don't quite know, but it is a constraint. At the very least, it behooves us to think about how we want to spend this time, right? Absolutely. And not in some kind of state of paralyzing indecision, but rather I would say in some guilt-free and anxiety-free state about these decisions. And I wouldn't say anxiety-free, I would say like no, in some ways- Minimized. Minimized yes. in the sense that, and I think that's where existentialism was liberating, that you can make these decisions and obviously there are material consequences of our decisions, but you really need to concentrate on and at least think through what you want to do. There's this beautiful phrase about, you know, I think I saw it in some books um, recently about, you know, in some ways, we have always these unlimited horizons, right? Life is just kind of stretching out and I'm kind of convinced that somehow my life is going to be sort of open-ended while everybody mm -hmm. else around me is kind of pushing off. Mm -hmm. You know, actually in the Indian epic, uh, the Mahabharata, there's this great scene where one of the central figures, Yudhishthir, he is in conversation with a forest spirit who asks him, who says, oh great king, what is the greatest mystery of all? And Yudhishthir says, he says the greatest mystery of all is that around us, all around us, animals, human beings die every single day. And yet every single human being proceeds upon this planet believing that this fate will somehow mysteriously pass over him. Mm. Right? It's this kind of... How true is that though? It's very true. How, how true is that? And that's why it's such a human natural thing, especially, mm -hmm. and again, I, I have to pull American culture because I feel like this is more of an American thing than many other nations out there is these these grand plans we make next week i'm going to do this in six months i'm going to do this oh you know um th in three years i think i'm going to go ahead and finally take that big vacation right and marcus aurelius would say what makes you think that you will wake up tomorrow how dare you even put that in your mind that you're going to make it to tomorrow right now, of course, you know, the, the lives we live, the material lives we live with this enmeshments and implications that, you know, that generate this kind of daily life of ours. It, it implicates us in many responsibilities which make us, you know, sometimes live life in ways that are for the future, right, in many ways. You, but I think all we can do in many ways is try and find ways of being in the present, right, so that the present is, you know, that old injunction about the present being all there is. Mm -hmm to be in the moment and also I think really and I think this comes back again and again now especially living in Colorado taking this all the way back to the beginning of the conversation what are essentials right doing things I enjoy with people I love so I want to have quality time with my family with my friends right I want to do things I enjoy like and yeah, you know, like sometimes people say, man, life's too short for dealing with toxic people. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. L life's too short and we really should take that to heart. Not in some panic-inducing sense, like, oh my God, I gotta get so many fucking things done. No, 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 no. Not in that sense, but more just about being reflective about what it is that we engaged in, what is it that we truly find makes our lives meaningful. And... I do think, I, I, I like using this phrase, stripping things down to the basics and finding out what those basics are. 
for me very much it's you know it's it's reading writing eating meals with my family running climbing and really having good conversation mm-hmm. i mean i you know i i sometimes say the best thing about teaching was talking with students mm-hmm. the best thing about reading is conversing with a great mind right the best thing about climbing is sharing a rope i mean i don't climb alone i don't <laughs> fucking go out there and like solo by myself right yeah. i'm always like somebody's always belaying me i'm always belaying someone i'm always mm-hmm. like yo you got a rope i got a rack who's got the drawers you got to give me a catch bro i mean there's we're always with people it's a collective experience yeah it's a collective experience so i want to be with people i love and like doing stuff i enjoy mm-hmm. and it's not some like mantra or some formula but i think there's just there is a responsibility upon us in some ways not responsibility it's, a, it's our own existential responsibility the responsibility i have towards myself to really think deeply about how i want to spend my time who i want to spend it with and you know like that line about like you know choosing which hills i would like to die on <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. just like not picking trivial ones for god's sake but like and because i think that's all that can give you a life meaning right yeah so and and seneca said it best is he said life isn't short it's that we waste much of it yes yes exactly yeah exactly and i think many the the there's so many convergences on people saying things like this you know you have i think i read this great line by marco andrade he said you know you have two lives second life begins when you realize you only have one yeah right? and and that's the that is a fantastic quote that i've always been a yeah. big fan and of yeah and i think that's why you know there's there's a, there's a lot of beauty there in these like very sharp poetic pungent expressions you know like you know you like you know in in nietzsche's theory of the eternal recurrence which which is in das begzartustra there's this great thought experiment that he generates where he says live the life right that if you had to live it an infinite number of times you would happily say yes to that decision that's excellent right i am living the life i want to live and the other part about it which i think is very powerful i think existential concept again due to nietzsche is that this radical acceptance of one's life with all the pain all the heartbreak all the disappointment all the mistakes all the regrets everything wrong good beautiful bad ugly everything all of it take it all in own it because in some sense every single good thing that you have has in some ways its unique flavor and aspect because of this trail that led up to it and i love how you just put that actually i've never heard that before and i've never even really thought about how those words come together but the radical acceptance of one's life meaning the good and the bad everything combined yeah how do you feel about that life yeah i like that a lot you know and for those listening i know we're you know we're kind of geeking out a little bit on the whole world of philosophy and everything one of the things that i don't want to be misconstrued um for those who aren't super familiar you know with these ideas and stuff is there's a lot of quotes out there right mm-hmm. there's a lot of quotes we see them on social media we see them online and they get pulled from books and kind of just just kind of oversimplified and then a lot of people will pick up a phone and I've been guilty of this myself. You pick up a phone, you're scrolling through some stuff on whatever.com and you see this quote and you're like, "Oh, cool quote." Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And then that's it. 
it's just the quote, but there's no thought. There's no reference. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's so important to think about things like that, you know, and again, I could, you know, I could say, you know, radical acceptance of one's life and, and it's like, oh, cool, cool quote. But having this conversation and knowing the context and then thinking about it for a second. And I'm going to write this down in my, my journal because um, I, I mean, I have a journal for all things philosophy. I'm going to refer to this later, but I'm going to let it soak <laughs> for days, for weeks. And then I'm going to open up that journal. I'm going to refer to it months later and I'm going to let it soak some more. After weeks and months and years of soaking... I like to go back to these quotes, right? These things that were kind of cool in the moment, mm-hmm. but they didn't have enough time to soak in. And I just think that there's, we've got to be careful. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this amongst your students is mixing philosophy with like the novelty of it. Like, oh, you know, wow, that sounded cool. No, what did it mean to you though? Do yeah. you understand, you know, existentialism, memento more? Do you want... You, I know you get the concepts, but are you understanding it and are you trying to integrate it into your life? Okay, that's a great word. I was actually, um, uh, that's, that's a great hook when you said integrate. I think um, you, you know, people have different kinds of connections and with philosophy, you read a book, you come across a movie that moves you deeply in some sense. I used to say to my students when I used to give them these novels in my class on philosophical issues in literature, I used to say, go home, read these 30, 40, 50, 60 pages, the reading assignment, mark up a passage in the text that you find funny, interesting, curious, perplexing, boring, infuriating, whatever it is, where it had got some kind of reaction out of you. Mm-hmm. Mark it up, bring it to class. I promise you, when we start discussing this thing that you found interesting or for whatever reason, provocative, mm-hmm. irritating, or just wildly wrong, buried at its heart will be some philosophical issue. One of the reasons it has reached deep inside you and tickled you in whichever fashion is that it has touched something fundamental within you. So one of the ways that I think I used to try and approach teaching, and I still do, is to really get people to think about in this this whole class, these 14 weeks that we're going to be together, you read a bunch of stuff. Just really think about what stuff gets you. And then kind of chase that thought a bit, right? If I can get you thinking in ways, and you know, your journey is highly individual through these mm-hmm. texts, you know, you're like, maybe you got some things going on at home that are making your mind turn to some particular things. Mm-hmm. A, you will find out what's going on in your mind, what's really going on within you, right? And B, you will open yourself up to other ways of thinking philosophically about your life, right? So, you know, in some ways I would say the task is to cultivate a philosophical attitude to life, right? The, to live philosophy in that way. And that's what a philosophical education should do for you, right? But it's not just supposed to be, and as you said, it's not just supposed to be reading books. It's supposed to be integrating it into your life. And, mm. you know, in the most grandiose sense, it is, well, are you going to be more ethical and moral just by reading textbooks of philosophy? No but it might get you to start thinking about movies, books, poems, the decisions you make in your life, Mm -hmm. hopefully, just a little bit more reflective. And that's what it is, is philosophy, regardless of which one that you're kind of gravitate to, it's a guide. 
Yeah. You know, there's a you know, there's a short story from Epictetus who he was infuriated with his students, you know, he was a teacher and he was infuriated with his students for this one student in particular for asking what should I do in this particular situation mm-hmm. as he was giving this class and it's like that's not the point of the class. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what to do through philosophy will not tell you what to do. It'll tell you how to adapt and it'll give you a framework for how to live a life, but it's not it doesn't give you answers. You find the answers through philosophy. Yeah, and I would say uh, to fill that out, I would say might teach you um, certain styles of thinking, certain mm-hmm. modes of inquiry. It might prompt you to be more reflective, maybe to be more curious, to um, to learn how to frame certain kinds of questions in certain fields of inquiry. For example, I've had some of my students who have gone on to become doctors and engineers and lawyers after doing philosophy majors, you know, that they found it made their work more thoughtful, more critical. They raised certain kinds of questions and doubts in their work with their colleagues that they felt were very informed by the philosophical thinking. It was like, wait, there's a problem here. And it wasn't necessarily some like ethical issue. It's just a kind of, it teaches you perhaps, you know, some, you know, they love to say analytical skills, whatever that means, or critical thinking, right. you know, because that sounds good in business school, I suppose. Right. But it's, I think more than that, it can teach you to, you know, obviously live the good life in the most grandiose sense. But I, I just always just come back to this. If you can just teach us to be a bit more reflective about the choices we make, about the kinds of lives we are living and the kinds of decisions we are making. And I think to inject kind of Nietzschean tone in this, I think too many of us live with, I think a sense of shame and guilt that we're not living life right. Mm-hmm. Where not, do you think that comes from? I'm not, you know, I think it's multiple influences. One, I think is some kind of cosmic myth that we think is ruling our lives. There's some life plan out there for me and I kind of wish I knew what it was because then I would do it, right? Mm. But I don't really know what it is. I just have this feeling that I'm fucking up somehow. I am violating some plan. Maybe I'm violating some professional plan. You know, I'm not, I'm not like rising fast enough, making enough money. Maybe I'm violating some personal life plan. I didn't have enough girlfriends or like my family doesn't love me enough or my mm-hmm. children don't love me enough or I don't have enough friends or, you know, there's some sense in which I feel like I'm failing some kind of schema. And I think that can be both shame and I think it'd be guilt. And, and to me, anxiety and guilt are very closely related. If you, if you read Kierkegaard, this connection is very clear, but I think it's very strong. I always feel guilty. I'm doing something wrong. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm resting, I'm feeling guilty. I'm not working hard enough. If I'm working hard enough, I feel like I'm depriving my family and friends. What is up with this? Right? I feel guilty and anxious all the time. So I think like if we can relieve ourselves and work through our feelings of shame and guilt that we have about, you know, whatever it might be, it might be cowardice for someone, it might be like professional failure for someone, it might be like, you know, like might be, might be sexual failure for someone. Like I didn't, you know, like all my friends, like they tell me they had 35 girlfriends. I only had three. There's always some kind of, mm-hmm. some, some valuation we have failed. And I think it's really pays us to start thinking about whose valuations are these? Mm-hmm. Where have they come from? Whose life plan am I failing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't mine. I, I didn't come up with this schema for my life. So why do I feel guilty about violating some predetermined life plan? right? Who drew up all of this stuff, you know? And I think that kind of inquiry is super interesting for liberating ourselves from, I think, from very oppressive feelings of expectation or shame, like, man, am I, 
man, this fucking life is bullshit, dude. It's like that kind of feeling that drags people down into like mm-hmm. anger and self-hatred and self-mutilation. And you know, like, and like when you're done damaging yourself, you're going to start damaging other people or you're going to start with other people and then turn to yourself. And yeah. you talk on that, you talk, um, you talk about existential dread, mm-hmm. you know, now, I have never heard that particular term before, but please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to sound ignorant here. Is that the same as an existential crisis? Uh, an existential crisis will, uh, to, to stay within that lingo, it, is, uh, it will confront you or it will bring you into contact with existential dread in some ways. Okay. So the way, the way that I would express that dread is, um, and I think I use this uh, phrase in my essay, is mm-hmm. the feeling, you know, the a kid experiences when his parents lose him or her at an amusement park and you're like why where where's everybody gone or like with my dad with my mom mm-hmm. and that that panic mm-hmm. and they're very beautiful i think it's either kierkegaard or someone else who said you know when we as a nation as a culture as a civilization found out that a kind of ordering of the world that we had imagined existed with God, right? This is Nietzsche's phrase about God is dead. But it's, it's not just God that's dead. It's actually metaphysical certainty is gone. We're not certain about anything, right? We used to believe in absolute kinds of certitudes, certain kinds of convictions about the limits of good and evil and what our duties and tasks were. And that anchored our life, that told us where to go, what to do, which streets to go on, right? There was a little guidebook that we had, right? When that guidebook got taken away, we were terrified and I think there's this beautiful picture I'm not sure who it's due to is that you're on this rowboat and the rowboat is made of glass so you can see through it and suddenly the light clears and you realize that you are in a deep ocean which is 5,000 fathoms deep and you can suddenly see through to the bottom and when you suddenly see through to the bottom it's not deep water anymore you're on a great height and you feel that nausea you feel that that terror mm-hmm. and that that feeling that you are staring into this void, this thing that you thought was defined has suddenly lost meaning, that's dread. That's that kind of terror or that very deep fundamental kind of anxiety. There's a portion in my book where I talk about this kind of notion in the context of um, Heidegger's mood of anxiety. We suddenly ask yourself, right? Wait, who am I, right? What's my name? You're like, uh, my name is Samir. Sure, but that's just what your parents call you. And then you kind of go down this chain, right? And you have this terrifying sense that you're losing your grip on who you are. And this happens to people sometimes when they're tripping, right? Like on on acid or something like that. They have this terrifying sense that they lost this sense of, they realize that there's all these layers of meaning that the world had conveyed upon me. And I can kind of strip them off. Nationality, language, religion, right? The way I dress, all of this. Even the language I speak, in which I'm expressing my deepest thoughts, I was kind of programmed to speak this language. Not some intrinsic or essential aspect of me. I'm like, dude, I'm like a series of things placed here and given labels by the world and everybody kind of agrees upon this system of meanings, right? Somebody says, who's that? We'll say, yeah, that's Samir, dude. He's my buddy, lives down the street. There's an address, there's a name. But when you take all of that out, then what's left? 
or you ask yourself am i just those things put together right. just that kind of bundle and you're kind of entering that whole thing that we we're talking about on day one actually is the ego theorist versus the bundle theorist uh yeah or or even just just to just to stay with yeah that that feeling that overcomes you when you're unsure about whether you are something substantial mm-hmm. or whether you're just this collection of things yeah. that other people have bestowed upon you but you have no other identity independent of this world that i think is what i would call existential dread mm-hmm. is that that terrifying feeling that everything that i took to be solid is actually not solid anymore now with that obviously that's a you know that's something that you have seen a lot of people face um quite often the career that you're transitioning into because you're about to end your career as a edu- uh, as a formal educator and you're going into what was the uh name philosophical counseling philosophical counselor is that your mission when you enter that career is this what you're going to be how you're going to be helping people is to avoid or to deal with some of this existential dread that people are encountering amongst other things yeah i okay. think if i were to say it most broadly i would say it is people would come and talk to me or see me for the same things that they would go see a therapist for but right? what and what separates your field is that there you know there's other th- you know, there's theoretical models that psychotherapists and psychoanalysts use my theoretical model such as it is would be quite simple it's to help people think about whatever it is that ails them whatever that might be right a failing marriage or you know in in some mundane sense or anxiety in other ways to cultivate a philosophical attitude towards their problem right and that can mean you know it can mean an examination of what you believe what you value the relationship between your beliefs and your values to examine them to see whether somewhere in there lies the root of what ails you sometimes people are interested in understanding themselves through kind of a certain kind of self reflectiveness mm-hmm. or a kind of a self transparency i would say yeah aiding people become more self transparent so you're going to be that guide for them yeah okay and versus so, yeah. in a more traditional psychiatrist role that would use more so very how should i say very specific like medical terminologies and like hey you're tell me about your childhood and this is looks like you're dealing with x y or z you're going to be more so hey let's let's explore this more let's- yeah well you know one way that uh, you know someone might say i believe this and i say and i might say why mm. and he'll say because this and i'll say why and you might land up in someone saying well when i was a kid that's what i saw that's what i observed that's mm. how i formed these beliefs So you might land up doing personal archaeologies and genealogies in life but that's because That's interesting. But that's because you're trying to discover foundations for people's beliefs and values mm-hmm. and also because there is a historical there is a historical aspect to our lives. Mm-hmm. Right? We have memories, we have remembered past, we have constructed past, we have narratives about our past. There are stories we have told ourselves about our past. Yeah. Right? There are things that we believe that make us remember the past in certain ways. Mm-hmm. there are certain values that we have that make us remember some parts of our life and not others right so i think starting from that viewpoint there's this kind of way in which hopefully you come to understand yourself your life your place within it better now if you think of by the way 
other psychotherapeutic traditions, right? Psychoanalysis, interpersonal psychotherapy, psychodynamic psychotherapies, so much. All these disciplines have philosophical foundations. All of them use, make use of certain kinds of philosophical claims about the human mind, about human rationality, about certain claims about what the good life is. For example, if you go to some social worker who's a licensed therapist and you tell her that you're sitting around on your couch and flick, watching television, right? And, you know, smoking pot all day, right? You know, that might not comport with somebody's model of what the good life is, right? And there are certain kinds of frameworks that they imply. I mean, you know, the foundations of psychology and psychoanalysis are philosophical. So there are philosophical assumptions at play there. Mm -hmm. the, the, the very style of interaction in psychotherapy is questioning and clarificationing, clarifications and offering insights and interpretations. These are all essentially philosophical maneuvers. Mm -hmm. Insofar as you tell me something about your life and I say, hmm, have you noticed that you always seem to find girlfriends who have the following three features? I mean, this is me just offering insight because mm -hmm. I'm a good listener and a good observer and I feel that this is data that maybe you need yeah. to have pointed out to you. You're so, kind of pointing out very, um, very observable data points. Yeah, very observable data points. And you say, oh, I hadn't noticed that about myself. Okay. Well, here's Why some... Why does that keep happening? Yeah, well, you know, so I mean, I think one thing that's super interesting about this world of what we call therapeutic interventions, I'm not a psychotherapist because psychotherapist is a legal term, right? But psychotherapy, psyche means soul, therapia means healing, healers of the soul. That's what psychotherapists are. So philosophers were the original psychotherapists. Mm -hmm. The word therapia came up, came from Plato. The word psyche comes from ancient Greek philosophy, right? The healers of the soul. And that makes so much sense that you would go into that field um, just from a, just from thinking about how, just the little that I've learned during this conversation about how philosophy affects your life and how you use philosophy you know what the benefits are. And I think about that a lot too in terms of, you know, the vast majority of my friends that have never read a book on philosophy. And I feel like, let me know if you have this similar feeling, but I have this feeling like I have this secret knowledge from the books I've read and the education that I've had and the reflection that I've had based on that knowledge. It's like I understand myself in such a deeper way because of these concepts from 2000 years ago mm -hmm. i wish i wish everyone did this mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and don't and don't you sometimes think yeah that, and you know philosophy is not supposed to be secret it's not supposed to right. be esoteric it's supposed to be um it's supposed to be those kinds of tools that help us live a better life and once upon a time it was it was commonplace yeah that was exactly that was exactly why people studied philosophy. People mm -hmm. thought of philosophy as a way of resolving those great perplexities that every human being will encounter if they are sufficiently reflective. And in many ways, philosophy. I mean, you know, I think therapy. If you want to think of therapy or counseling or psychotherapy in 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 the sense of soul healing, is a field that I think philosophers have perhaps vacated because of the professionalization of academia because of the specialization of certain kinds of disciplines, because of the fact that certain kinds of empirical models of the mind, 
right, took over departments of psychology because of medicalization of the mind. But people, people, this is a claim to make, this is an ambitious claim, people can benefit, people can be aided by reflection on their lives, people can be aided by critical reflection on their lives, people can be aided by developing a philosophical attitude in the sense of what I would call an elevated perspective on life. You know, one of my first introductions to philosophy was through a book that my dad owned, and it was by an obscure English philosopher called J.D. Malbot, and it was a book of political philosophy. And in that, he compared the philosophical exploration to a man who is going up the staircase of the steeple tower of a church. And as he goes up the staircase, he keeps on looking out the windows. And as he keeps on looking out the windows, he keeps on getting higher and higher above the town. And as he keeps on going through this, he notices things about the town that he hadn't noticed before. He notices how the town is laid out. He notes the perspective of the streets, how some things, some houses are closer to each other. And above, from this perspective, he can see how things kind of fall into place, right? They kind of fit together in certain ways. You know, the sounds of the crowds kind of fade away, the noise and the din is gone, and he's able to see more and more and more as he rises. And he can fit more things together precisely because you can say, aha, that piece over there, I see why it is over there because from this perspective, I can see it, right? So I think, I think in that sense, philosophy is that thing, hopefully, which can help us develop that kind of perspective. And sometimes just by placing our life into perspective, sometimes we can help make sense of it, right? Like sometimes I'm like, you know, my life is meaningless. Yeah, but I'm also part of this richer, broader tapestry. When I raise myself up and I see what I'm part of, then I see like, wow, all these other things around me are making my life meaningful as well, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like I'm part of the Colorado experience right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and I mean, imagine, because what your intended mission is, and it's it sounds like you have the tools to do it, you're not going to be able to reach every single person on the planet, obviously. But for the people who you do reach, I find it fascinating that you're going to be on the forefront of greatly mitigating your client's anxiety. And Hopefully. Just like we were talking about. And I mean, just, you know, I have this sense of you, you know, I have since day one. Your anxiety is mitigated. No one's is eliminated, but it's greatly mitigated. You just have that, you have that freedom to yourself, Samir. You know, it's just, you live life. You don't let the trivialities of it destroy you. And it does, little things um, do crush a lot of people with anxiety. Yeah. And I'm not trying to, you know, minimize them or, you know, berate them in any way. But you, again, you have figured this thing out and by you introducing this um, type of therapy to them, I find it amazing that you're gonna allow them to live this life that it's just gonna be a million pounds off their shoulders. In its, in its, in its, uh, in its hope and promise, and of course, you know, um, in the true existential sense, I always say, you know, the work is to be done by the person who walks in through the door or in our new virtual therapy sense, the person who clicks on the Google Meet link. Mm -hmm. um, the work is to be done by you. The fact that you are here wanting to have this conversation is an indicator that you want to do the work, mm -hmm. that you want to change, but change always comes from within, right? Um, 
and that change is driven by you know by conversation by reflection by sometimes seeing exemplars but i would you know just to go back again to what you said about having achieved something i would say these are like ongoing processes and the extent to which you know that you have done something is something that's you know the the you know i'm not waiting for the end of life to evaluate my life um, you know this thing is what you have now um, you make decisions on how you want to spend each day you know i had certain responsibilities today i lived them i tried to do the best i could i taught three classes in philosophy i went for a run in the morning i scrambled the second flat iron and i had a great time with a friend in the morning right um i called him up yesterday so time with a friend in the morning mm-hmm. i taught my students today i taught machiavelli in the morning i taught philosophy of law in the afternoon and i taught i taught freud civilization and its discontents in the afternoon in my breaks when i would come out i met my daughter right she she had the day off i would grab some food and we'd go sit outside in the lunch and i would have breaks with her and then i finished my class and then i drove out here to see you right so it's like that's an amazing day yeah it's an amazing I, day I mean, it's an amazing day yeah. and, and you're and i can i can gather that you're not you're not uh, quantifying or you're not you're not quantifying how great it was based on the mere checklist how many things you accomplished but the quality of what those things were yeah, yeah, yeah. those are all things that yeah. you love doing yeah you, you know, know today one student attended a class of mine there's a registration of 30 students mm-hmm. one student came to class today because a lot of them skipped class because of they got schedules and, and I'm going to yeah, make a recording kids. available these are, I mean these yeah. are 18 year olds yeah. right so this student comes yeah. and I'm like Aaron I'm glad you're here we chatted a bit then we started discussing Machiavelli and I had the recording of the meeting on and I said you know Aaron this is what we're going to do today you're here I'm here mm-hmm. I'm having a conversation with a thoughtful student so yeah I'm talking about Machiavelli with someone and you know modern examples came in and we used it to illustrate modern politics mm-hmm. and make it relevant and you know it was a great time and I think it's not as if this happened overnight you make these small small decisions you choose not to do certain things you choose to do certain things and mm-hmm. and we have to make those choices and there's no guarantee of success either yeah. right i mean like as i say this whole shit house could go up in flames tomorrow mm-hmm. for all i know um but you know so long as you're being deliberative about it so long as you're thinking through what you're doing so long as you are in some ways being reflective about your decisions and you know hopefully to some extent why you do certain things and what makes your life meaningful then i think all you can really do is just keep plugging plugging away at it you know like you know aristotle said excellence isn't a state it's a habit mm-hmm. right we are what we repeatedly do right so literally all you can do is string together a bunch of good days right get up in the morning do what you got to do that day right in whatever meaning making scheme you've got on in your life that's all you need to do there's no there's no like there's not going to be any examiner waiting at the end of our lives man dude you only got 73% of this hate to tell you this but you kind of <laughs> fucked up this life no man there's nothing like that going on there's nothing like that going on it's you, how you want to live it yeah. yeah and you know it's like like and that's why i never i never uh, berate anyone who you know when it comes to like climbing or you know something like that someone who is maybe not pushing to 100% um, because again, are they enjoying themselves being out there? Yeah. You know, as you know, as someone who like like I take out friends a lot. You know, I'm getting in, into the the hosting scene. You know, from a meetup perspective, I, I very much enjoyed when we went out. 
um, the other weekend, I was just mostly just watching people, mm-hmm. kind of you know doing some safety checks, some supervising thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't get a bunch of climbs in, but I had a blast because I enjoyed just being there. And at the end of the day, that's a great spot too. Yeah, that's a great spot. And yeah. at the end of the day, you know, it's like that's how I chose to spend my day. And I did not quantify the success of that day by how many, you know, whatever climbs did I get in or, you know, the success on these climbs or anything. No, it's, I had a great day doing what I wanted to do. And I believe in what you, you know, from what you just said is at at the end, there won't be a little tally. Um, Now, I do believe that there'll be, you know, some sort of tally in terms of good deeds. And did we spend our life being well? You know, the... um, the ancient Egyptians had this um, in ancient Egyptian mythology. They had a two-part question when it came, or a two-part challenge when it came to moving on to the afterlife. And the first question was, "Did you find joy in life?" Mm-hmm. You know, and most well, you know most people, you know, would be able to say, "Yeah, I had a great time." You know, but that question was kind of easy because you could be, you could steal from people, and you could you know, get rich taking other people's things or you could just live a life of gluttony, you know? So finding joy in life is not the, that's not the hardest thing to answer, right? The second question was, did others find joy through you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was the hard one that many people didn't pass. Right. Did others find joy through you? And so that's how I think of my life. The The Stoics say, sonum bottom or live a good life, be good basically right be good right. do the right thing right right you know all those translations kind of come together um and that's not always easy to figure out which is what makes life challenging but very we get much. plenty of clues and what to do given the situations that we are in mm-hmm. um i think very often we are placed in situations where we have very difficult decisions to make and mm-hmm. i think that's what makes living the good life a really difficult one mm-hmm. and i don't think we should expect easy answers to it and i think that's precisely why the kinds of reading that we do that expands our mind that brings us into contact with different kinds of perspectives with different lives that people can live so that we respect people's decisions i think this is why like reading biographies is super interesting because you realize the complexities of one life and how the outside world affected people's decisions so i think so long as we are prepared to accept that that life is complex and that we are placed in a unique kind of location within it we with us our unique histories our backgrounds the the package that we bring to it and that's why i go back to that martha graham line it's so beautiful about you know it's like you are in some ways the shape that the universe has taken at this point in space and time right you are the expression of the universe's energy at this point and in some ways your life is the kind of the unfolding or the revealing of that right in some ways if you think about it and you're kind of bringing it into being there's not like something here that's already like a seed or embryo blooming it's like it's literally being constructed at each step by my actions you're you're almost discovering it yes second by second that's right yeah yeah it's in or, and, and i'm literally bringing it into being mm-hmm. i'm like actually inventing it as it goes along right and that's that's what i'm here to do it's like play my part in all of this and you know like i said there's thousands of things that come together to give you this rich looking room right now and if they were all the same you would have utter blandness <laughs> it would just be like this white featureless like mm-hmm. formless mass 
But the reason you have so much diversity around you, or there's so much beauty around you, is because it's so different. Mm-hmm. And and that's me. It's like this one part of this tapestry in some sense, right? Samir, again, I want to be super respectful of your time. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to shift gears a little bit, moving sure. into the last segment here. Thank you. Um, something that I want to talk about that, again, is just was fascinating from you know the moment that um, I met you is uh, your whole family climbs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, your wife is a fantastic climber. Like she just, she just gets after it. Zero fear in her eyes. You know, um, and she'd I be mean, surprised to hear that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, she, well, I mean, if there is, she has greatly mitigated any yes. signs yeah. of fear. And you know, again, we all have fear. Yeah. I have fear. Yeah. Um, a lot of my friends, you know, see me more on the spectrum of like, oh, bro, you know, you're kind of pushing the risk there. But I still have some sure. sort of fear. Yeah. But your wife gets after it. Um, I love the motivation because this is what I do is I love to observe human interaction. And I was observing you guys climbing and your motivation and your encouragement and the connection that I saw Joy come from you when she sent her climb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I loved that just from you know you guys being together, husband and wife and everything and like your joy is her joy. Her, hers is yours. You you have it. Um, your daughter, nine years old, correct? Mm-hmm. Nine years old, lead climbing, something that most of the rest of the group like had to bail out on. Yeah. I mean, crushing it. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, did you get your daughter, did you push your daughter into climbing or did she just one day say, hey, dad, I see that you guys climb, I want to climb? No, I, I took her climbing and it was, uh, you know, when she was born and she was like a couple of years old, we noticed that she wasn't like super, like with gross motor skills and fine motor skills. Like maybe she was a little bit behind, like she was like, wasn't jumping and all this kind of stuff. So we called on a physical therapist and they, you know, they said, you know, she's a little bit behind the curve, but she's not like that behind that you need to worry or anything. And she was a very cautious kid and, uh, you know, pretty sort of. I don't know, not fearful, but just a cautious kid and not mm. like very physically sort of like, you know, where the kids are only bouncing all over the place. And I wanted to, you know, just, you know, give her the tools or the skills that would, you know, allow her to grow in ways. And for me, because I I knew that I'd had this fear of heights and falling and I could either make out that she had it or she, you know, I don't know what it was, but we started going to a park and there was a park that had a little kind of climbing wall thing in the middle and I would just encourage her to get on it and hold her up and kind of make her climb on that and that was when she was about three three and a half or so and then and like you know like a couple of times she got to the top and she was kind of psyched so for her fourth birthday I took her to a climbing gym and that experience was pretty crappy but then when we came to Colorado in 2017 when she was four and a half years old I took her climbing, we took her to Boulder Canyon, she top roped for the first time that time. We took her top roping and I and I really, I think in some ways it was a little bit of a deliberate attempt on my part that I want to introduce her to climbing, introduce her to something that's difficult, mm-hmm. that can be scary, that will hopefully also give her some physical confidence and you know, give her you know, all those things that... These all translate into life. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And I never had any kind of like ambition that she's going to be like... You know, I just I just wanted her to have an activity that she would enjoy in that sense, and you know she was that sense she was kind of 
there was something right up at the bat about her. She would just like, she would climb, she would do it. You know, she didn't want to be lowered. You know, she was like, she was scared in that sense. Right. But um, we started taking her on stuff quite quickly. Like she did her first multi-pitch climb in Eldo when she was five and a half. And uh, I took her to Yosemite that year, took her climbing in Tulumni Meadows. She did another couple of multi-pitches there. So she had done like four or five, she had done like two or three big multi-pitch climbs by the time, she, you know, she wasn't even six by then. And then, you know, we started taking vacations in Colorado out west and took her top roping again and again. And then when we moved to Colorado, she started lead climbing when she was seven. And, you know, we put her on easy climbs. We would bolt the first, you know, we put the first draw on for her. And then after that, we started turning into a thing that whenever she would top rope something, we'd ask her, like, do you want to lead this? And, you know, she was, you know, she has very good judgment. You know, there's time she'll say, no, don't want to lead it. She goes, no, I can lead it. Or like that has a sketch run out or that has a leggy thing. She won't want to lead it. But sometimes she'll just, yeah, she'll do it. Yeah. And she's, um, you know, like, I, you know, people sometimes say things to me like, oh, kids are fearless. And I'm like, no, kids have lots of fears. Mm -hmm. And she gets scared. I mean, you know, but she, but I always tell her, I'm, I'm glad you get scared. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you have a scary freak out and then you work through it, I'm super happy. It's way better than a climb that you did completely smoothly. Mm -hmm. At 100%. It's like there's a thousand times more learning to get from an experience in which you got climbed. I said there's like a layer that goes into you. And so, she's in the competition seat now, is she not? You know, she's, uh, she, she's, she's too young to like do any of the qualifications for regionals and nationals because mm -hmm. they have youth D. But the local competition Yeah, yeah. So, she, you know, so, yeah. so she's at the gym. She climbs with kids and coaches. You know twice a week at the gym on mondays and wednesdays and then on the weekends we, we're always out climbing and you know but i've encouraged her to not be obsessed about sort of that climbing gym can become a little bit like you know like man did you send that 12 way did you do you know, a little bit great kind of thing i'm like don't worry so much about that and concentrate more on the mountains and on the rock so i always i said we'll go to the mountains we'll be outside so I've really encouraged her to think about like the big thing is like getting into the mountains so like you know she's climbed Long's Peak yeah. she's climbed Mount Whitney in California through a technical rock climb she's hiked a bunch of 14 years we go climbing every weekend so and none of this is like any achievement thing I just want her to be I just want her to enjoy the outdoors and through climbing and hiking to develop hopefully I won't say anything like life skills but just you know be smarter and get into a space where you have to make decisions right and even indirectly, you're teaching her to be present yes. through this beautiful Concentrate, thing focus, that is yeah. climbing, That's being right. outdoors with people you care about. That's right. That's right. I like always tell her, like, babe, we go to beautiful places. You know, we're going to Lander, Moab. You know, we're going to mm -hmm. Sawtooth Mountains. We're going to beautiful places. Like, just take take this all in. Get to the top. Take in the view. You know, don't be in a hurry to get lowered. You know, take your time. So. It's and I think these years climbing with her have just been easily the best of my life. I mean, she's yeah, she is a she's a fantastic climber again. Because I remember, I remember there was some you know, because she did a pretty tough climb. It was like a five ten or something. Yeah, that was a ten B, which had that yeah, crux up at the top. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Serious and yeah, she was psyched. Um, and she comes down um, after she sent it. And, uh, you know, cool as a cucumber. And, she, you know, I'm like, hey, hey, how was the climb? And she just turns, just a very nonchalant face. Yeah, the crux was a little bit difficult. Yeah. But I did it. Yeah. And she just, you know, unbuckles. And, I, you know, I'm like, oh, oh, my God, you're, you're putting me to shame. <laughs> but, um, 
And then how do you feel, you know, your wife climbs, do you feel that that has greatly created a deeper connection with you and your wife having a partner who shares this passion? Oh, very much so. I, I think my, my, my wife, uh, Noor, um, you know, she, you know, she noticed um, Ayana's climbing, my spending time with Ayana and us doing it on our vacations. And she was like, this is great family time together. Mm. This is something we can all do together. And it's honestly, I feel like from 2018 onwards, we've just planned our vacations around climbing. Mm-hmm. So we've gone to beautiful places, you know, we'll splurge some, you know, and, you know, when, you know, when we can do it, we'll get an Airbnb somewhere, mm-hmm. get, you know, we'll road trip out, we'll climb. And you know, ever since we've started lead climbing, it's been like the most amazing climbing vacations. Cause you got a rope, you got some, you got some draws, you got your climbing shoes, helmet, harness. You can just go to beautiful places, mm-hmm. park the car, just grab your guidebook and just hang out for the day and like I think like family sport climbing has been so amazing I'm like dude I had an amazing day I climbed two pitches I found the crag I found that the climbs is, that is the <laughs> it's a major in task it's a major task <laughs> I drove there I found parking I found the crag we camped out we got a couple of climbs in we cheered on my daughter we ate some my wife makes amazing food for the crag and you know like we just have great picnics i saw i was very uh i was very very jealous of your daughter's because yeah. <laughs> it's not like it was like like some che- some like cliff bars no no no, no. she, she like, yeah so we and we had a flask of like hot sweet chai with us and we're like so and then at the end of the day you pack up and you're sweaty and tired and satisfied and you know like i'll stop at a gas station and get my daughter some chocolate milk and I'll treat myself to a sweet lemonade and it mm-hmm. is the best freaking day ever. It's like, I don't care I fucking climbed 5758. It was an amazing day, you know? It was just like the best. And I think, yeah, family time has just been amazing. And I'm super grateful. I feel super blessed. You know, who knows how long it'll last and all these kinds of things. But who knows how long anything will last, last for any of us. Any of us. So, But know? I'm just happy that we have this great time. And, you know, like we do... I'm like, next weekend we're going to go to Taos... And it's going to be the same thing. I'm going to be mm-hmm. psyched just to have found the crag and gotten one climb. I'll be happy. Yep. I was like, I did it. I, I climbed in a different place. Yeah, no, cl- family climbing. And, you know, I think with my wife, especially, she's, she's had a similar journey in some ways because she was, she had never climbed. She had never done, you know, many of the outdoor things that we've done together. She had to work through a lot of fear. You know, she's taken a ground fall once at Shelf Road. She fell while clipping the second bolt mm. on a 5.7. And it was a tricky 5.7. It had a tricky little move. She fell. She hit her head. She got she got mild concussion. We had to take her to the emergency room. All that kind of stuff. Next weekend, man, she was back leading. Yeah. And you know... That's she, very rare. And she's had like little blips. You know, this time she'll go and, you know, like that. But she keeps getting back on it. Mm-hmm. And just yesterday, we went to Canal Zone. And, uh, you know, she was climbing something. And, you know, those... There was a 10A with just one crux at the top. So most of it was chill. Was that Holiday Road, by any chance? No. The uh, crux at the top where you have to choose left or right? Gondolier Eret. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gondolier Eret. <laughs> and, um, and it just has like an escape move to the right. Yes, you yes. Know, you kind of like go sideways. And she went up, she did it. She said, I'll lead it. And she went up and sent it, you know. So I actually always say to her, like, wow, like, like you've actually in some ways overcome a very interesting barrier because you didn't have all this great introduction to athletics and school and all this kind of stuff and like you know these kinds of experiences were relatively novel for you so she's you know maybe even worked far greater fears than me 
So I have a lot of respect for her in her climbing and especially like, you know, her coming out with us and she's spending time with her daughter and supporting her in all these ways. She's like, <laughs> she's like a great climbing mom in that sense. Yeah. And, and what is next for you in uh, the world of climbing? What do you... Uh... Uh, well, I've just started leading trad. I've just bought a double rack. You I've, told me, yes. Yeah, and so we should definitely get out and do some moderate leads in Eldo, man. I, yeah, Eldo, I was just... Uh, just because winter's coming. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, it's getting chillier. I was just over at... Uh, just over at North Table. Yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, High exposure. 100%. Beautiful 100%. sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started hiking in a sweatshirt yeah. just on that short approach. And then and I'm you like, lose this it sweatshirt then. has to come off. Has to come off. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Absolutely. And um, I want to start uh, doing a bunch of trad leads. Mm -hmm. I want to start doing that and working up, hopefully, in, you know, take my own sweet time to start getting on whenever the time is right to doing some moderate alpine leads. And next level, our, man. Next level, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, so. I found it interesting. You and I, we were talking about trad leads when we started trad, and you and I had the same exact that's first right. trad lead. That's right. That's right. That's tail. right. Whale's tail. That's oh. right. And that's such a friendly first trad lead. It is. Um, <laughs> so yeah, trad leading, um, getting better at that, building up to alpine rock in the park, mm -hmm. and you know uh, uh, the classic alpine moderates like uh, Spearhead and Shark's mm -hmm. Tooth and Notch Dog, uh, those moderates. And then I want to get better at um, one thing I really want to do. I really, I really need a partner, so we should talk about this. I want to do more alpine trail running and scrambling. So I want Always to go down. to the, I want to go to the Indian Peaks and do mm -hmm. the big like Blue Lake Traverse. And I want to do like yeah, I want to do way hundred percent. I want to do way more trail running, scrambling, traversing kind of things in Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park. I want mm -hmm. to do more of that. Um, yeah, and I, and I want to be more. I, I, and, I, and, I do, and I want to do more stuff in the winter. So get out more, hike more. Um, I'm getting faster, which I'm noticing. So winter hiking will hopefully see me in better shape. Yeah. So yeah, those are the immediate objectives. I mean, I have, you know, everybody has big climbing objectives. Like you want to go to all these amazing places. Like mm -hmm. I, I want to go to the Bugaboos and I well, want to go to the Cascades. We live in the epicenter. Of epicenter climbing. of climbing. So like there's no, and I, you know, I feel like the flat irons are the yeah. best thing I've found in my Same life. Same page, dude. No, they're Same so page. amazing. I love the flat irons. A lot of people, you know, are like, uh, you know, the flat irons, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's no 515s there. Dude, well, there's everything is there. Right. There is there is scrambling. There's trail running. There's mm -hmm. jungle. There's like there's yeah. like hill running adventure. There is really amazingly sport yeah. climbing as well. And there's great track climbing. Slab yeah. multi pitch. Yeah, slab multi pitch, man. <laughs> it's like all day plugging like fine placements and yep. doing all that stuff. So I am psyched about the flat irons. I am so happy to be living close to them. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. All right. Uh, so Smear, dude, again, appreciate you you coming out today, man, dude. Um, I hope I've been somewhat respectful. Of yeah, man. I'm, I'm kind this, of amazed you this, you uh, you had us on. Thank you, dude. Thank this, you. Uh, oh man, great, fantastic conversation. I I can't tell you how personally fulfilled I am from. Oh, thank just you so much. Getting another, you know, just your expertise and another insight on a very a very niche um, passion of mine. You know, so um, so I do want to go over. Um, you've referenced your book a bunch of times. Just for those listening, what is the name of your book? Uh, so the book that I'm writing right now, which I'm in the final stages of editing, is um, is it's well the title of the tentative title of the book is Anxiety: A Philosophical Guide, and it'll it'll be published by Princeton University Press maybe next year, next okay. winter or something like that. Uh, so that's on anxiety. It's got kind of um, you know introduces folks to philosophical theories of anxiety and talks about how philosophical reflection can aid us in understanding anxiety. 
um, yeah, that's my current work, and uh, yeah, I've got you know. You had a prior one also, and again, I apologize. Uh, I was I was just trying to keep up with the references. Um, I pulled excerpts um, from yourself multiple times. Your your past book is called A Legal Theory for Autonomous Artificial Agents. Is that correct? Yes, one of okay. my past books, uh, and yeah, and that's uh, that's on <laughs> that's you know, like I said, in, in my many academic interests it's it's a book that details or tries to develop some kind of legal framework for how to accommodate artificial intelligence so given the kinds of capacities that artificially intelligent programs have or artificial yeah. autonomous artificial agents have how should we accommodate them in things like contract law privacy law um, and agency law right because mm -hmm. people typically use these programs to do work for either corporations or companies so can we apply agency law to them? So this book is an attempt to apply agency law to artificial agents and then what the consequences of that would be, which is obviously a philosophical and a legal subject as well. Right? Perfect. Yeah. yeah, so that was one of my, yeah, that's, that was um, probably my last um, book in that domain of the intersections of technology and philosophy. Nice. Right. And you are you're still in the works of creating the framework for your future business. Uh, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be in that counseling scene. Is yeah. That an yeah. So scene? I am, I am, you know, I have, I have, uh, limited counseling hours these days cause I'm still working as, as a, uh, it, is uh, that personal consultation? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I have my own private practice. Where can people reach you for that? Specifically? Um, you know, they can, they can, you know, they'll obviously find me on my website, which is a very simple website. It's just samirchopra.com. Samir Chopra, C-H-O-P-R-A. Yeah. Dot com. Yeah. S-A-M-I-R. S-A-M-I-R. Okay. C-H-O-P-R-A.com. There's email links on there and they can, um, you know, they can write to me th through there. And, you know, there's also a counseling search engine or a therapy search engine that's called Psychology Today. And people, is that psychologytoday.com? Yeah, okay. I think that's psychologytoday.com. I think if you if you mm -hmm. Google psychology today, that's where it would take you, and then you can search for me out there. And that's typically where a lot of you know that's where typically people find me, and they'll send in inquiries and that sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah, but counseling is my next my my next my next gig, so to speak. Once I finish, you know, the life of a professional academic, that'll be it. And the plan is to. Um, the plan is to counsel on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays and keep Monday and Friday open for writing and climbing. <laughs> there you go, man. <laughs> That's the plan, and I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and any other um, outlets or, or um, that, you know, uh, for people to contact you or anything you want to say in closing, man? Uh, you know, uh, folks will get, uh, you know, folks will get links to all of my writing through my website. I have a blog on there, which which I don't write on anymore, <laughs> funnily enough, but it has a gigantic archive of articles, actually. I've written over 1,500 uh, uh, blog posts on that. Are the links that yeah, yeah. you sent me on there? Uh, those links are, well, those links are my are my writings for like Eon Magazine or Psyche Magazine, yeah. Yeah. right? So, so if people search for me and search for anxiety, they would actually find a bunch of links to my essays online as well. Yeah, guys, and again, I... You know, Smear had sent me these um, a few days before the podcast, and um, it is Aeon.com, uh, A-E-O-N. He has an article, The Usefulness of Dread, uh, which was um, a very a very uh, insightful and personal, um, you know, editorial, basically. Um, just, you know, against, you know, I, I can pull, I have a hundred 
<laughs> different screenshots here that I've taken and I can't get to all of them, but it was excellent. But it starts off, my anxiety has been lifelong, but I would not wish it away. It has made me the philosopher and person I am today. And it, it just, it's a very deep, heartfelt article. Thanks, um, Yep, it was excellent. And uh, yeah, so you can uh, find those. And uh, yeah, dude, again, thanks for coming on, dude. And thanks for having me on, man. It was will, a great uh, conversation. Thank yeah, you. We'll be uh, climbing, getting after it. And I hope we have a follow-up on just... We were scratching the surface today yeah, on totally. a lot of things. You know, you can't unpack 2,000 years of philosophy um, in an hour or so, but it was uh, it was great. So thank you for coming on, dude. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for having me on, man. Thank you so much. That was a great time. Thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for uh, listening in to the Denver Crooks podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed. Hope it didn't get too, uh, <laughs> too far out there. Uh, but I will see you guys on the next and, uh, you know, just continue climbing safe and keep doing dangerous things carefully. <laughs> hey everyone, this is your host, Jared Hazel. Just wanted to thank you all for listening to the Denver Crux podcast. As a friendly reminder, make sure when you're out there, leave no trace. If you see a water bottle or something on the trail, pick it up, toss in the trash later. Helps out everyone. A lot of these local trails and climbs, there is management that goes behind them, so if anyone can give back, whether it's giving a buck or two or some volunteer time to the access fund to your local climbing council or coalition do so make sure you're not running your ropes through that fixed hardware up there does wear down over time so just something to keep in mind some good etiquette the podcast is always looking for new guests so whether or not you're you've been climbing for a month or 50 years i'd love to have you on and share the experience so if anyone wants to reach out at any time feel free my Instagram handle for the podcast is Denver Crux Podcast. So, with that said, everyone, climb safe, go out there and do dangerous things carefully. <laughs>